Hey Z, got your call about idealism. So this term usually refers to a type of philosophy that starts with the early empiricists Locke Hume onwards, who were saying that well, there is matter out there in the world, and we sense that matter through the sense data which we perceive, and then we re-elaborate all of that sensory input into ideas, and ideas are what we actually experience. And then you get people like Berkeley, Berkeley's idealism, that's a classic use of the term, and you can very easily interpret Berkeley to be saying that actually we don't even interact with matter, we are just interacting with the ideas, the, you know, the, the re-elaborated sensory input, and you could take that to mean that there is no matter and that all there is is just ideas, kind of like a virtual reality, that's obviously, you know, a further interpretation of Berkeley, but that's what idealism stands for, and then, you know, you get Kant's idealism and Schopenhauer, etc. But actually, I was interested in something you said in another call-in that I heard about um, the definition of theory that doesn't include the word fact. I, I didn't know anything about this, but I'm curious to understand better what you mean in terms of where you think fact should figure in a definition of theory. And I'm not asking that because I think that it shouldn't or that it should. I don't have a definition of theory in my head. I mean, I, maybe I could think of one, but no, no, just... Uh, just you know, let me know what what you think. I, I, what you said was very interesting about how theory doesn't contain the word fact. This you said it almost as though this was something that on some level offends you, and I'd like to understand why and or how, how you think it could be different. Fact versus theory. Well, Richard Dawkins has stated many times publicly that theory is fact. In fact, I'm pretty sure it was in junior high school when I was taught the difference between a hypothesis and a theory, and the difference between a hypothesis and a theory, as I was told in my youth, was one was a fact and one, the other, was developing a potential fact. Well, I was talking to my wife the other day and I had reiterated, theory is fact. And she said, oh yeah, prove it. So I told her to Google the term and look at the definition. And it was at this point that I became enlightened that the term theory did not have the word fact in its definition. And this, in fact, in the world of dictionaries has been a point of controversy at least since the uh, 1913. Now, the only thing that actually bothers me about this is just my own ignorance. I mean, I suppose what bothers me is that there doesn't seem to be a correct definition for theory. I mean, the theory, the definition for theory sounds like the same definition for hypothesis. Well, at least this explains why everyone's so confused. So perhaps you, my dear listener, can further enlighten me and perhaps tell me the difference between a fact and a theory. Integrity Radio. Things had to get really bad for me to understand the importance, the profound importance of Wing Chun to humanity. Prior to uh, 
being exposed to Wing Chun, I had been to hell and back at least twice, maybe even three times. On this third particular occasion, I had graduated from music school, but lost everything. I found myself homeless in a town that I had just moved into. Now, by this time, uh, I wasn't a, a newcomer to homelessness. But I was a newcomer to this completely freak, weirdo town called San Francisco. So the crisis of that situation was coupled with the opportunity uh, of meeting the great Chris Chan and learning Wing Chun directly from him. Now, I had learned martial arts since I was a kid and trained in martial arts and used martial arts since I was a kid. But Wing Chun was entirely different. This, it was beyond uh, a physical martial art. It was beyond a philosophy. This martial art really spoke to the psychology of being human. Wing Chun expresses a bridge between the animal and the human. Now it's been, I guess, I guess 25 years that I've been training in Wing Chun. And I'm still just blown away at how little interest there is from anyone and everyone. I mean, there's so few people that express true interest in this art form. It's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing in that almost everyone you talk to is interested in saving the planet or becoming a better human or making a difference. But the problem is everybody wants to make a difference in their own unique yet impotent way. It's like we each need to redesign the wheel. Every single one of us need to design the wheel before we actually will use the wheel to get anywhere. And here's this beautiful system of becoming human that was invented about 400 years ago from women in China. And the system is open and available to everyone and anyone. And yet this process that's called Wing Chun falls mostly on deaf and ignorant and arrogant ears. I mean, I've been on Anchor for over six months, well over six months, and I have not had a single inquiry, not a single debate on how Wing Chun can help us to attain our humanity. None. I've been on YouTube for years. None. It's not that the answer of Wing Chun is being dismissed as being false or untrue. No. It falls on deaf, lazy, ignorant, arrogant ears. So it's kind of like this. You know, for years I've been telling people, don't walk out into the street. Uh, you're, you'll get hit by a car. You got to look both ways. If you just walk out in the street, you're going to hit 
get hit by a car. And then a bunch of people get hit by a car. And over and over this happens. Well, I'm not going to stop telling people to not walk out in the street. I won't stop warning people, but it almost is comical at this point. It's absurd. Now, I don't have all the answers, but I have most of the answers that you require. They're not being contested. They're just being ignored. Ah, yes, the youth and vigor of arrogance and ignorance. Integrity Radio. The most astounding fact. The most astounding fact. Is the knowledge that the atoms that comprise life on Earth, the atoms that make up the human body, are traceable to the crucibles that cooked light elements into heavy elements in their core under extreme temperatures and pressures. These stars, the high-mass ones among them, went unstable in their later years. They collapsed and then exploded, scattering their enriched guts across the galaxy. Guts made of carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and all the fundamental ingredients of life itself. These ingredients become part of gas clouds that condense, collapse, form the next generation of solar systems, stars with orbiting planets. And those planets now have the ingredients for life itself. So that when I look up at the night sky, and I know that, yes, we are part of this universe, we are in this universe, but perhaps more important than both of those facts is that the universe is in us. When I reflect on that fact, I look up. Many people feel small because they're small and the universe is big, but I feel big because my atoms came from those stars. There's a level of connectivity. That's really what you want in life. You want to feel connected. You want to feel relevant. You want to feel like a, you're a participant in the goings-on of activities and events around you. That's precisely what we are, just by being alive. Our ancestors understood origins by extrapolating from their own experience. How else could they have done it? So the universe was hatched from a cosmic egg, or conceived in the sexual congress of a mother god and a father god, or was a kind of product of the creator's workshop, perhaps the latest of many flawed attempts. And the universe was not much bigger than we see, and not much older than our written or oral records, and nowhere very different from places that we know. We've tended in our cosmologies to make things familiar. Despite all our best efforts, we've not been very inventive. In the West, heaven is placid and fluffy, and hell is like the inside of a volcano. In many stories, both realms are governed by dominance hierarchies headed by gods or devils. Monotheists talked about the king of kings. In every culture, we imagined something like our own political system running the universe. Few found the similarity suspicious. Then science came along and taught us that we are not the measure of all things. 
that there are wonders unimagined, that the universe is not obliged to conform to what was considered comfortable or plausible. And again, if we're not important, not central, not the apple of God's eye, what is implied for our theologically based moral codes? The discovery of our true bearings in the cosmos was resisted for so long and to such a degree that many traces of the debate remain, sometimes with the motives of the geocentrists laid bare. So what do we really want from philosophy and religion? Palliatives? Therapy? Comfort? Do we want reassuring fables or an understanding of our actual circumstances? Dismay that the universe does not conform to our preferences seems childish. You might think that grown-ups would be ashamed to put such disappointments into print. The fashionable way of doing this is not to blame the universe, which seems truly pointless, but rather to blame the means by which we know the universe, namely science. Science has taught us that because we have a talent for deceiving ourselves, subjectivity may not freely reign. Its conclusions derive from the interrogation of nature and are not in all cases pre-designed to satisfy our wants. We recognize that even revered religious leaders, the products of their time, as we are of ours, may have made mistakes. Religions contradict one another on small matters such as whether we should put on a hat or take one off on entering a house of worship or whether we should eat beef and eschew pork, or the other way around, all the way to the most central issues, such as whether there are no gods, one god, or many gods. If you lived two or three millennia ago, there was no shame in holding that the universe was made for us. It was an appealing thesis consistent with everything we knew. It was what the most learned among us taught without qualification. But we found out much since then. Defending such a position today amounts to willful disregard of the evidence and a flight from self-knowledge. We long to be here for a purpose, even though, despite much self-deception, none is evident. Our time is burdened under the cumulative weight of successive debunkings of our conceits. We're Johnny-come-latelys. We live in the cosmic boondocks. We emerged from microbes and muck. Apes are our cousins. Our thoughts and feelings are not fully under our own control. There may be much smarter and very different beings elsewhere. And on top of all this, we're making a mess of our planet and becoming a danger to ourselves. The trapdoor beneath our feet swings open. We find ourselves in bottomless freefall. We are lost in a great darkness and there's no one to send out a search party. Given so harsh a reality, of course we're tempted to shut our eyes and pretend that we're safe and snug at home, that the fall is only a bad dream. Once we overcome our fear of being tiny, we find ourselves on the threshold of a vast and awesome universe that utterly dwarfs, in time, in space, and in potential, the tidy anthropocentric proscenium of our ancestors. We gaze across billions of light years of space to view the universe shortly after the Big Bang and plumb the fine structure of matter. We peer down into the core of our planet and the blazing interior of our star. We read the genetic language in which is written the diverse skills and propensities 
of every being on earth. We uncover hidden chapters in the record of our own origins. We invent and refine agriculture, without which almost all of us would starve to death. We create medicines and vaccines that save the lives of billions. We communicate at the speed of light and whip around the earth in an hour and a half. We have sent dozens of ships to more than 70 worlds and four spacecraft to the stars. To our ancestors, there was much in nature to be afraid of. Lightning, storms, earthquakes, volcanoes, plagues, drought, long winters. Religions arose in part as attempts to propitiate and control, if not much to understand, the disorderly aspect of nature. How much more satisfying had we been placed in a garden custom-made for us, its other occupants put there for us to use as we saw fit. There is a celebrated story in the Western tradition like this, except that not quite everything was there for us. There was one particular tree of which we were not to partake, a tree of knowledge. Knowledge and understanding and wisdom were forbidden to us in this story. We were to be kept ignorant. But we couldn't help ourselves. We were starving for knowledge, created hungry, you might say. This was the origin of all our troubles. In particular, it's why we no longer live in a garden. We found out too much. So long as we were incurious and obedient, I imagine, we could console ourselves with our importance and centrality and tell ourselves that we were the reason the universe was made. As we began to indulge our curiosity, though, to explore, to learn how the universe really is, we expelled ourselves from Eden. Angels with a flaming sword were set as sentries at the gates of paradise to bar our return. The gardeners became exiles and wanderers. Occasionally, we mourn that lost world, but that, it seems to me, is maudlin and sentimental. We could not happily have remained ignorant forever. There is in this universe much of what seems to be design, but instead we repeatedly discover that natural processes, collisional selection of worlds, say, or natural selection of gene pools, or even the convection pattern in a pot of boiling water, can extract order out of chaos and deceive us into deducing purpose where there is none. The significance of our lives and our fragile planet is then determined only by our own wisdom and courage. We are the custodians of life's meaning. We long for a parent to care for us, to forgive us our errors, to save us from our childish mistakes. But knowledge is preferable to ignorance. Better by far to embrace the hard truth than a reassuring fable. If we crave some cosmic purpose, then let us find ourselves a worthy goal.